come to you this morning praising your name, thanking you for who you are, that you are the almighty creator God, that you are also the redeemer God, and that you care so much about your people. We thank you, Lord, for sending Jesus Christ to this earth to become a man so that he could take our sins upon himself on that cross, die for us, be buried, and then raised from the dead. And we thank you, Lord, that he has been victorious over death and over the grave, and that he is the one who holds the keys to hell and to death, and that if we know him, he opens that cell and sets us free from our bondage to death and to hell, and we need not fear anything anymore. And these are some of the things we'll be looking at this morning. We pray, Lord, that you will help us to really give Jesus Christ the praise that he deserves as we meditate on him this morning, as we continue our look at the vision that John had there on Patmos when he saw the glorified, resurrected Christ and got the message of the book of Revelation. Father, still our hearts now and just hide your servant behind the cross of Christ, for we pray in his name. Amen. While the Apostle John was in banishment on that small Greek island of Patmos for his faithfulness in preaching the gospel message to a pagan, hostile world which was ruled by egotistical Roman emperors, the Lord Jesus Christ appeared to him, and instantly John's banishment was turned into a blessing. The 90 to 100-year-old saint was given the most extensive revelation of future events to ever have been shown to any New Testament writer, and he was also privileged to once again hear the voice of the dear Lord commanding him to do something. Last time he had heard the Lord's voice was when? On the day of ascension, when the Lord went up into heaven and he had commanded his disciples to go into the uttermost part of, of the world and preach the gospel. The great and here again, now he was privileged with another command from his Savior. He was told to write down in book form all of the magnificent things that he would see and hear. And then he was to send them to seven churches which were specifically mentioned by the Lord Jesus Christ in verse 11. Not only did John hear the trumpet-sounding, many-waters-sounding voice of the glorified Savior, but he also saw him. Remember it says he turned around to see the voice? He saw him in his full glory as he stood in the midst of seven golden candlesticks or lampstands. And then Christ was described by John as like unto the Son of Man, which was a title which speaks primarily of his humanity, but also of his deity and his messiahship. And we learned that the Lord was dressed in the robe of a what? judge, exactly, with a golden sash of a king, right. And his head and his hairs were both the purest white. They were wool white or snow white, and that depicted his holiness as well as his eternality and his wisdom. And his eyes, which shot out flames of fire, demonstrated his piercing judgment and his indignation about something very, very serious to him. And then we were told that his feet were like unto fine brass as if they burned in a furnace. That was in verse 15. And this also represented judgment. And we learned that upon such glowing white-hot feet of judgment, the Lord Jesus, the holy judge, the omnipotent king of king, kings, will tread 
down the unrighteousness of this evil world system. And it is also upon these same feet of burning hot judgment that he currently walks among his churches and views the sins of his own people, which is what we'll focus on in chapters 2 and 3. However, as we ended our lesson last time, we did mention the fact that even though the resurrected Christ stands in the midst of his churches, or his church, we could say, since the seven represent the whole church, even though he stands there as the all-powerful, all-knowing judge, yet he holds in his right hand the hand of power those who truly belong to him, those who he purchased with his own precious sinless blood. And that is good news, isn't it? After looking at such a holy, awesome, almost fearful vision of Christ, this is good news to those of us who have genuinely been born again into his body of true believers, who are members of his universal church. And this then, of course, is what we are going to be looking at in this second part of our study entitled Banishment to Blessing. This is Banishment to Blessing Part 2. And we're going to cover verses 16 to 20 of Revelation chapter 1. Now these verses make up section or the verses we're going to be looking at, look at make up section C under part 2. Part 1 was just one verse. That was verse 9. We looked at the banishment, John's banishment to the Isle of Patmos. Then we started the blessing. We covered the great voice John heard and the great vision John saw. Today we're going to look at the great victor John worshipped. And for that, let's read verses 16 to 20. Revelation chapter 1. And this is a continuation of talking about Jesus Christ. It says, And he had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was as the sun shineth in his strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. And he laid his right hand upon me, saying unto me, Fear not, I am the first and the last. I am he that liveth and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And have the keys of hell and of death. Write the things which thou hast seen, and the things which are, and the things which shall be hereafter. The mystery of the seven stars which thou sawest in my right hand, and the seven golden candlesticks. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven candlesticks which thou sawest are the seven churches. For anyone who may have any doubts at all concerning the deity of Jesus Christ, the Revelation chapter 1 description of him really, really should settle it. To say here that his appearance, based even just on verse 16 alone, is unique, is really an understatement. His appearance is so supernatural, and it is so glorious, that it could be given to no one but who? But God. No one but God. In verse 16 we find three additional details about John's vision of Christ from what we had learned last week. Three more details. First of all, we're told that he held seven stars in his right hand. Secondly, we are told that a sharp two-edged sword proceeded out of his, what? Out of his mouth. And thirdly, we're told that his countenance was as the sun shining in its strength. I imagine that must mean like a 12 o'clock noon sun. Isn't that when the sun is shining at its strongest point? Well, we're going to consider each one of these symbolic descriptions individually, beginning with the fact that John wrote that the Lord Jesus held seven stars in his right hand. Now, the right hand symbolizes power, 
You know, for example, Jesus Christ currently sits where? On the right hand of God the Father. That speaks of power. The right hand also speaks of protection. And by the fact that he is holding the seven stars in his hand, it further denotes possession. He's holding them. They belong to him. So it symbolizes power, protection, and possession. Now, whoever or whatever these stars are is something that we're going to discuss when we get to verse 20. We're going to discuss that in some detail. But they are, we know this for sure, they are in the secure possession of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this should remind us, really, of something that the Lord had said during his er earthly ministry at the time of his Good Shepherd sermon back in John chapter 10, which we have a mini-album on if you missed that. He said to his disciples, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. Although Christ is the righteous, holy, all-penetrating, all-seeing judge, yet he holds the believer securely in that right hand of his power. Did you ever realize, did you ever think about the fact that when the Lord said no man can pluck his sheep out of his hand, that he meant no man? And did you realize that no man includes the believer himself? What am I saying? Well, I'm saying that not even the believer can pluck himself out of the Lord's hands. And what does this tell us? It tells us once saved, always saved, a believer, a true born-again, genuine believer, cannot do anything that will cause Christ to remove him from his hand. He who comes to Christ, he will in no wise cast out. Paul wrote, nothing, this is in Romans 8.38. We all know Romans 8.28, right? Well, if you go down ten more verses, we have a very, very powerful second statement that Paul wrote. He said that nothing can separate the believer from Christ's love. And then he got very specific. He said not death, not life, not angels, not principalities, not powers, not anything present, not things present. That means, in other words, not anything you might do in the present, not things to come. In other words, not anything you can do in the future of your life. Not height, not depth, not any other creature. And any other creature includes Satan and all his demonic forces, which were really already mentioned when he said principalities and powers. But it also, any other creature also includes any human being. And any human being includes the believer himself. So nothing, even yourself, if this is only if you're truly, truly, genuinely saved, then nothing, 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 not even yourself, can remove you from the love of Christ. No one can pluck you out of his hand once you are in his hand securely. When the Lord gives the one with genuine faith in himself eternal life, it is eternal. Eternal life cannot be broken. Otherwise, it would not be eternal. You see? So he cannot promise you eternal life and then have something you do remove that. It wouldn't be eternal. He'd be giving you temporary life if you maintained eternal life. Something like that. But it doesn't, it doesn't work that way. The scripture doesn't support that. Now the problem some people have 
with believing in the eternal security of the believer is that they look at someone who has left Christianity. They look at someone perhaps who has left the local church and not returned or who openly confesses that he no longer believes in the faith, that he no longer believes in Jesus Christ, and they say he has lost his salvation. The fact of the matter, however, is that that person never was truly saved to begin with. He only looked like he was saved. He looked like he was wheat, but he was really a tear. And 1 John 2.19 was written in order to solve this problem for us, because that is a problem. When we look at somebody, we say, oh, I know that person had to have been saved. They gave all the evidence of being saved. They were out there witnessing. They were doing all kinds of things. And now they say they don't believe anymore. They, they lost their salvation, and that's a problem for us. But 1 John 2.19 says it. He tells us that the reason they went out from us was because they were not of us. They only looked just like Judas. He fooled all the disciples. The only one who knew his heart was Jesus. But he fooled all the rest of them. They were not of us, for if they had been of us, they would no doubt have continued with us. But they went out that they might be made manifest that they were not of us. Now, this is a permanent leaving. Some people leave, but they come back if they're really, truly saved. The Holy Spirit will eventually draw them back. So sometimes you don't know till a long way up the road if they're genuine. But it's not for us to judge anyway. Only God knows the heart. Now when we get to verse 20, we're going to talk more about the symbolism of the seven stars. But I thought it was interesting to see the magnificent picture we have here of Jesus Christ as the creator God. We have that drawn in this verse. We're told that his face shined like the what? The sun, probably the noonday sun, the sun in its strength. And what did he have in his hand? Stars. His face looked like the sun, and in his hand he had seven stars. Now, the Greek word for star is aster, A-S-T-E-R, which can really mean any type of light, heavenly light, such as a, a planet or a comet or a meteor or, or a star. So this vision of Christ, if you can just picture this as John was seeing it, Christ with a face like a sun, seven stars in his right hand, set against the background of the heavens, the beautiful heavens over Patmos, and the beautiful blue sea, you know, the Mediterranean Sea, if you've ever seen it, it's about the bluest blue you can ever imagine, surrounding this small island. That would have really, really given John a beautiful symbolic picture of the Lord Jesus Christ as the creator of the universe, the blue sky, the blue sea, his face like the sun, and seven stars in his hands. Well, the next picture given by John tells us something about the Lord's mouth, a two-edged sword. And none of the pictures, if you notice, <laughs> that I have been showing up here have shown this him correctly. They do not show a sword coming out of his mouth. I don't know why they can't read and draw what they read, but all of the pictures I found had the sword in his hand. But it tells us distinctly that the sword was seen coming out of his mouth. Now, the Greek word used here for sword is ramphaia, which refers to a long, heavy, kind of like is shown in his hand there, a long, heavy sword. And this word is used five other times in Revelation. Always, always it is used in reference to judgment. By contrast, however, 
A different word for sword is used in Hebrews 4.12, where we're told that the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. That is a different Greek word. So the sword of revelation is symbolic of the sword of devastating judgment. However, because the Revelation chapter 1 sword, the one coming out of his mouth, is said to be a two-edged sword, I believe that we're to see that although one edge of the sword is used in judgment against those who reject Christ and reject his free offer of salvation and are consequently his enemies, yet I believe that the other edge of the sword represents the quick and powerful word of God, which Christ uses. He uses to pierce into the very soul and the spirit of a man to convict him, you know, down to his very joints and the marrow of his bones, to convict him that he is a helpless, hopeless sinner in utter need of the Savior's saving grace and his forgiveness. So I still think that this two-edged sword coming out of his mouth symbolizes the word of God rather than just a sword of judgment. Because really, if you think about it, it is the word of God which ultimately will judge every man. Those who have believed it, who have believed the word, and have trusted in its truth because they have been pierced through, you know, by it, pierced through with conviction, they will be saved. On the other hand, those who have rejected what the Word of God has to say about truth and the way of salvation will be pierced through with judgment. So it's a two-edged sword. And this is exactly what will occur when the Lord returns at the second coming. Revelation 19.15, I believe, is the verse. It tells us that it is with the word of God that he will smite the nations. In other words, God's word will judge the nations and the people as well as being either guilty and consequently will condemn them to eternal separation from God or will judge them as being saved and they'll be able to go on into the um, millennial kingdom. Well, the last description given to us in verse 16 is that the Lord's face was like the sun shining in its strength. And this shining countenance symbolizes the majesty and the glory of the judge. John, who during his earthly life, or during the Lord's earthly life, had been the apostle who, remember, at the Last Supper, laid his head against the Lord's breast and had experienced probably the most intimate fellowship with him over and above all the other disciples, John was now in the presence of the glorified Son of God, and his power and his majesty were no longer veiled, and his righteousness was revealed to be as a consuming fire. The three inner circle disciples, who were they? You remember? Who were the three inner inner circle disciples? Yes, Peter... James, and John, this very same John who wrote the book of Revelation. They had seen the Lord Jesus with this same kind of glory when they had beheld him where? On the, yes, on the Mount of Transfiguration. In fact, in describing what they had seen up there, they said that his face did shine like unto the sun. So see, he did unveil his glory, and they saw the same picture here that John was seeing later. isn't John was blessed, wasn't he? He got to see that twice. And then Saul, 
Saul became, as you all know, the Apostle Paul. He had met the Lord Jesus on the road to Damascus, and he said, he described that the light that he saw was, quote, above the brightness of the sun, shining round about him and them who journeyed with him. That's in Acts 26, 13. You know, man cannot look at the sun shining in its strength. And even less, see, even the sun can't look at it. It has to have wear sunglasses. <laughs> and even less can man attempt to approach it. You can't approach the sun without being burned up, consumed. God is a consuming fire. The sun is a consuming fire. We're told by scientists, and I thought this was an interesting fact, that one pound of heat from the sun can raise the temperature of 25 million tons of rock by 2,500 degrees and turn it instantly into white-hot lava. I mean, that is hot, isn't it? That is a consuming fire. So you cannot just approach power like that. And, of course, who was it I said wrote that it was even, when he saw the Lord, it was even above the brightness of the sun. So John couldn't handle what he was seeing here on Patmos, just as Daniel The prophet Daniel couldn't handle the vision of the Son of God, which he saw in Daniel chapter 10, or at least which he described to us in chapter 10, where he told us that there remained no strength in me, for my natural color turned to a deathly pallor, and I retained no strength. And then the glorious brilliance of Christ's presence, as we just said on the road to Damascus, even blinded Saul. It was so bright, he lost his sight. And, of course, he was instantly converted into a believer. The revelation of God in his glory had a similar shocking effect on others in the scripture as well. For example, Isaiah, upon seeing the glory of the Lord as he sat on his heavenly throne, high and lifted up, surrounded by six seraphim, or six-winged seraphim, said this, he said, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. You know, he thought he was done in for, because he had seen a vision of God. And then Job responded to the Lord God, who spoke to him out of a whirlwind in Job 38.1 by saying, I have heard of thee by the hearing of the ear, but now mine eyes see thee. Wherefore, I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. That's Job 42, verses 5 and 6. And then Peter had a similar reaction when he first realized the awesome power of the Lord Jesus Christ, the power he had even over creation. And that was, remember, after Peter the first time had been out fishing all night, he and the other guys, and they hadn't caught a thing, and then the Lord filled their nets with fish to the breaking point. And what did Peter do? He responded by saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord, and fell down, of course, upon his knees. Well, John's reaction to the vision of the glorified Lord Jesus Christ is very similar. We are told in verse 17, And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. Now this type of response, when I was looking up all these, and there are other responses in the scripture as well from other men, but I got to thinking about this. This is really something of the response that the church of the Lord Jesus Christ needs today. We need, I believe, a new awareness of the holiness of, and the glory and the righteousness and the majesty 
of the Lord Jesus. We need to see him as these men saw him. We need to see him high and lifted up. We need to realize much more fully than I think we do, including myself, we need to realize how indignant he is over sin. Even the little sins. He is very indignant about sin. We have, I believe, become far too casual in our treatment of the Lord and in our attitude toward him. You know, we tend to think more of him as a a gentle, benign uh, grandfather type or, you know, as our, our good buddy, our friend, rather than the almighty God whose whose presence and whose person is a consuming fire. I think that our attitude and our spirit in the presence of the living Lord should be one of deepest respect <clears throat> and reverence and humility. And I, I really do believe that there is a profound absence of awe and worship in our churches today, in many of them, not all of them. And it's the casual service nowadays, the casual service which is being promoted. And it's just that sort of thing, I think, in my, in my thinking anyway, it's just that sort of thing that spawns a casual attitude toward God in the younger generation, if not in our own generation as well. And furthermore, I find that there is far too much boasting about what Jesus has done for me. Oh, what he's done for me, for me, for me which we all tend to do, and I'm guilty of that too. But that is a self-oriented mentality. Really, we should be boasting about the person and the majesty and the holiness of the Lord Jesus Christ. We should be falling at his feet, and I think that we would be falling at his feet if we truly knew him as we should. And that's where John was. He was lying prostrate at the feet of the Lord Jesus as though he were dead. And then we see something truly wonderful. We see that the Lord Jesus reached down and compassionately touched John with that very same hand, that right hand, with which he had held the representatives of the seven churches, the seven stars. And furthermore, we see something else very beautiful. With the same mouth out of which went that sharp two-edged sword of judgment, the Lord Jesus spoke words of peace and not judgment. And this is how he is with those who belong to him. It's a completely different story, isn't it, to those who belong to him. He said to John, fear not. I am the first and the last. And it's interesting to realize that this is the very last time that God, and Jesus is God, that God spoke the words, fear not, in the scripture. And if you look in your concordance, you'll find out that he said it many, many times in the scripture, from Genesis to Revelation. God said, fear not, many times to his people, which I love. We don't need to fear, and we'll hear more about that this morning. Well, what makes this really interesting is a comparison with the first time that God ever said those words, fear not. The first time occurred back in Genesis 15, verse 1 when God was talking to Abraham, or Abram at that time, back in 15.1 of Genesis, he said to Abram, Fear not, Abram, I am thy shield and thy exceeding great reward. The very first time that God spoke the words, Fear not, was therefore made to a man who is called the father of faith, right? He's the first patriarch of the Judeo-Christian faith. 
the man Abram, who became, of course, Abraham. Now, the last God-spoken, fear not, was directed to the last living apostle of the Judeo-Christian faith, and that was the apostle John. And both fear nots, you will notice, were followed by I am statements. You see, the Jehovah God who spoke to Abram, saying, I am thy shield and thy exceeding great reward, is the same I am that I am who spoke to John in Revelation, saying, I am the first and the last. He was, in other words, the first one to say, I am, and the first one to say, fear not, and he is the last one to say, fear not. And I am. He was the first one to make a divine I am claim, and he was the last one to make a divine I am claim. He spoke to the first patriarch of the faith, and he spoke to the last apostle of the faith. In both situations, God was telling those who belong to him because of their faith in him that they don't need to be fearful of him. They need to reverentially fear him as their Lord, but they don't need to dreadfully fear him as their judge. And there's a big difference, isn't there? A big, big difference. And then, of course, he went on to give John four reasons why he, as a believer, does not need to fear. The first reason is because Christ is the first and the last. And this I am claim made by the Lord in Revelation 117 denotes, as we've already said back in our comments on verse 11, this denotes his eternality. He is the eternal God. He is the creator of all that is. He is before all things, and he will still be in control after all things, at least after all things that are going to end. Since John belonged to him, he was in good hands, and he need not fear anything in life. And the same, of course, is true with you and I. If we know that we belong to Christ, we don't need to fear anything. We can rest assured that we are held securely in the hand of the eternal God, the first, the one who is the first and the last. So that's one reason not to fear if you belong to him. The second reason not to fear is given in the Lord's third I am statement in the book of Revelation. Remember, we said there's a total of seven. In verse 18, he told John, I am he that liveth and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. Now that statement, as we've also mentioned previously, proves to us that the one who spoke to John and appeared to John in this entire chapter 1 vision was more, none other than the resurrected Son of God, because he is the only member of the triune Godhead who could say, what, that he was dead. And all, of course, all three members of the triune Godhead could say that they're the Alpha and Omega, the first and the last, but only one could say that he was dead. So we know the speaker here is the Lord Jesus Christ. Literally, in the Greek, the words was dead mean became dead. So he was saying, I became dead. Jesus became dead as opposed to being alive from eternity past and living on into eternity future. And the Lord, of course, became dead for whose sake? For our sake, right? In order to pay the wages of our sin, because the wages of sin is what? Death. So he died to pay our wages of sin. However, the good news is that he defeated death, and he rose from the grave, and now because he lives, we who believe in him will also live. 
And although we are dead, yet shall we live, as it says in John eleven twenty five. you know, the Lazarus chapter. And so John need not fear because the one who spoke and the one who tenderly reached down and touched him was not only his creator, the first and the last, but he was his savior. He was the one who died for him and then rose again. So John and all of we who are like John, because we're believers in Christ, we need not fear anything in life because he, Christ, is the eternal living one. And he holds us in his right hand of power. And we need not fear what else? We need not fear death. And that's pretty inclusive. If we don't need to fear anything in life and we don't need to fear anything in death, that's pretty good news. <laughs> we don't need to fear death because he is the resurrected one who conquered death on our behalf. But he goes on to give us another reason why we don't need to fear. He went on to tell John that he doesn't even need to fear eternity. Isn't that wonderful? We don't need to fear life or death or eternity because Christ is the keeper of the keys of hell and of death. And this is an implied I am statement because essentially what he is saying here, he's using the first pronoun from that sentence. He is essentially saying, I am he who has the keys of hell and of death. He is the possessor of the keys. Now, this is one of the greatest claims ever, ever made by Christ. It is a mountain peak of scripture. Over the thousands of years of human history, there have been multitudes of scholarly men and philosophers and religionists and researchers and scientists who have longed and searched to find the key to life and to death. But the truth of the matter is, that the key is Christ, because Christ possesses the keys. He alone has the key to life and to death. He has the keys to hell and to death. Now, hell is the Greek word for Hades, and that is the equivalent of the Hebrew word Sheol. So all three words you can use interchangeably, Hades, hell, or Sheol. Both words, or all three words, describe for us the place for departed human souls before the death of Christ. Actually, um, let me explain. Before the the death of Christ, everyone who died went to Hades. But Hades consisted of two compartments, one for the wicked dead who were in torment and the other for those who died in faith and were comforted. Um... According to Luke 16, verses 23 to 26, and also according to the Lord's words, remember, to the penitent thief, where he said, Today thou shalt be with me in paradise. This latter section, this section for those who died in faith, was referred to as paradise. And the two compartments of Hades, or Sheol, or hell, were separated by what? A great gulf. Exactly. All pre-Calvary believers were safe in God's keeping in paradise, which is also referred to as Abraham's bosom. Because during their physical lifetimes, they had trusted in God's word that one day the redemption price for their sins would be paid in full. So they were looking ahead to Calvary. 
all of human history focuses on Calvary. You were either looking forward to Calvary or we look, look back on Calvary. But they knew one day, they had faith that one day the price for their sins would be paid in full. And when that payment was made, they would then be covered by the blood and could therefore enter into the presence of holy God. Well, when the Lord Jesus resurrected from the dead, he emptied the paradise section of Hades. And he led the souls of all the Old Testament saints into God's presence in hell. 1 Peter 3, verses 18 to 20 tells us about this. Now, the reason he could do this was why? Because he had the keys, right? Romans 6, 9 states that Christ being raised from the dead dieth no more, death hath no more dominion over him. The one who was dead, the one who became dead, was now alive forevermore, as he tells us in verse 18. He has robbed death of its sting. He has robbed the grave of its victory. He has also robbed Satan of his power. And Satan's power over man is to keep him in bondage to sin and to death. So the keys to Hades and the keys to death were purchased by the Lord Jesus with his own precious blood. That's how he paid for those keys. Hebrews 2 verses 14 and 15 says, Through death he nullified him, speaking of Satan, who had the power of death and delivered, Christ delivered them, who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. You see, we don't need to be subject to bondage anymore. We do not need to fear death anymore. Why? Because we know the one who possesses the keys to death. And he has freed us from our fear. We now know, or we should know, and we should rest secure in the fact that to be absent from the body is to instantly be present with the Lord. So the Christian doesn't need to fear death. We don't need to fear hell. We don't need to fear, ha- uh, fear Hades or the lake of fire. Because the Lord and Sa- our Lord and Savior has opened the lock on the cell and he has set us free from all former dread and fear of these two of our worst enemies, death and hell. On the other hand, however, those outside of Christ, those who do not know him, have every reason to fear the power of hell and of death because they don't know the one who has the keys to set them free. And a key, of course, is a symbol for, what do you suppose? Freedom, right? Freedom and release. After the great white throne judgment, which is a judgment of all unbelievers, you know, no matter what age they lived in, the great white throne judgment is a judgment of all unbelievers. We're told that after this, death and Hades will be cast into the lake of fire. That's where all unbelievers will spend eternity. Not in that compartment of Hades, but in the lake of fire, the eternal lake of fire. We're told in Revelation 20 that this is the second death. So the big question is, the most important question that anyone can be asked is, do you know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior? Do you know the one who possesses the keys over death and over Hades? And if you do not, you desperately, desperately need to know him. You need to believe on him and be saved so that you don't need to fear going to the eternal lake of fire one day. And that is serious business. So if you don't know him, please, I beseech you, take care of that today. 
Well, I'm not really going to say a whole lot about verse 19, since we've already talked about it before. It is the key verse for outlining the book of Revelation, and therefore we're going to keep referring back to it from time to time, especially as we move into each one of the remaining two sections on our general outline, which is based on this verse. And, of course, we're still looking at the first part of this divinely given outline where John was told to write the things which thou hast seen. And the thing which he had seen, the primary thing, was the vision of the glorified Christ standing in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. And then, of course, um, beginning with our next lesson, next week, we're actually going to move into the second part of this outline as we look at chapters 2 and 3 where John was told to write the things which are. And then when we go into chapter 4 through to the end of the book, we'll be in the third part of verse 19 where John was told to write the things which shall be hereafter. So we will be coming back frequently to this verse, uh, Revelation 119, important verse. It gives us the outline for the whole book. That's all I'm going to say about it. So in verse 20, we'll move on here. In verse 20, we've already mentioned that the Lord Jesus, who is still the speaker here, he's still talking, that he interpreted for us and for John the symbolism of the seven golden candlesticks or the lampstands. And what did he say they were? He said they represented the seven churches. They symbolized the light-bearing church of Christ. Christ himself is the light, right? We don't give out any light on our own, but we bear the light. He is the light. We bear the light to the world just as a candlestick would do. The candlestick itself is just gold. That's how he looks at us as gold. We're precious to him. But you put the candle, the candle is the light. Put, the candle bears the light so that people in darkness can see. And then he also went ahead here in this verse and interpreted the seven stars which he held in his right hand. He said the seven stars are the what? Say louder. Angels. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. Well, that makes it real simple, doesn't it? As kids would say, not. (laughs) No, it doesn't make it very simple. Because the question remains, who are these angels? And there has been a great deal of dialogue about who these angels are. And the reason for this is that the Greek word for angel, which is angelos, in the Greek, can mean either angels, literal angels, or it can mean messengers, like human messengers. So what do you think has happened? Well, there are two views concerning the seven angels of the seven churches. Now, there are many, many godly Bible scholars who teach and who believe that the translators of the English Bible, or at least the King James. I I didn't even look to see what the other Bibles say, but the King James were correct in interpreting the word angelos in Revelation 1.20 as the word angels. Many believe that this is right. The word is used 188 times in the New Testament, and in almost every place it speaks of literal angels. Now, those who teach this view argue that if John had wanted to make it clear that the Lord Jesus was not speaking about real angels, then John could have used um, the word pastor or the word shepherd, which is the Greek word poimen. He could have used that word, that Greek word, if 
Jesus was not talking about angels, but it was talking about like the spiritual leader of the church. Or he could have used the word elder, which was is presbyteros. That's where we get the word Presbyterian. He could have used that word. The word presbyteros is used 12 times in the book of Revelation. So if he meant the spirit, one of the spiritual leaders of the church, he could have easily used one of those words. That's their argument. Furthermore, these Bible teachers inform us that the word angelos is used 67 other times just in the book of Revelation. And in none of those other places could the word possibly be translated as pastor or as elder. So their conclusion is that the churches have individual angels assigned for their guidance and their watch care. And I looked this up in Vine's Expository Dictionary of Old and New Testament words, and Vine's agrees with this translation of verse 20, that the word literally means angels. Now the concept of guardian angels for churches should not really be surprising when we consider their assigned function as ministering spirits to believers. That's what we're told in Hebrews 1.14, that they are our ministering spirits. That's exciting to think about, isn't it? They are there to minister to us. And we're told by the Lord Jesus himself in Matthew 18.10 that individual believers have angels assigned to them. So you see this idea about guardian angels isn't just a bunch of make-believe mythology. It's in the scripture. Furthermore, according to 1 Corinthians 11.10, angels, we are told, are also present during church services. I wonder what they see and hear in some of our church services. And according to, and now I'm going to give you a whole list of verses, just so that it's on the tape. According to 1 Corinthians 4.9, Ephesians 3.10, 1 Timothy 3.16 and 5.21, Hebrews 13.2, and 1 Peter 1.12, according to all those verses, angels are very interested in observing what goes on in the lives of God's elect children down here on earth. There's a great cloud of witnesses watching us all the time. <laughs> That's a scary thought, isn't it? Well, even though the idea of guardian-type angels assigned to each local church is generally an unrecognized thought among Christians, or at least it was before Frank Peretti wrote his books, right? (laughs) Yet it really shouldn't be a surprising thought. In Daniel chapter 10, we learn that God has certain angels assigned over nations and that they actually battle with the demonic forces of Satan. In Daniel 10, 13, the archangel Michael had to assist the angel who was given the divine assignment assignment of being the guardian angel over the nation of Persia. Michael was sent, Michael is the big, mighty archangel, was sent to help this angel over the nation of Persia in battling the wicked prince of the kingdom of Persia. And that, of course, is a fallen angel, apparently assigned by Satan to be the wicked angel over the nation of Persia. And these two forces, we were told in Daniel 10, battled for a total of 21 days before God's messenger angel was able to get through with his message to Daniel. And if all of this seems strange, and it does kind of, doesn't it? It seems kind of strange. Well, it really shouldn't seem strange to us. I mean, the angels probably think we're strange. (laughs) 
It's just we can't see them, but they're created beings, just like us. But this really shouldn't seem strange because aren't we told in Ephesians 6.12 that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but that we wrestle against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness, where? In high places, up there above the nations. And furthermore, the symbolism of an angel in the scripture as being a star is consistent because stars are frequently identified with angels throughout the Bible. For example, in Revelation 9-1, we're told that a star fell from heaven to earth when an angel sounded the fifth trumpet judgment. And the star which fell refers to, not Satan, don't look at that yet, but it refers to a heavenly angel who was assigned to open up the bottomless pit and let loose a plague of locusts upon the earth. And then also in Revelation 12, verses 3 and 9, that's where you can look at this picture, we find a description of Satan being cast out of heaven and taking one-third of, quote, the stars of heaven, unquote, with him. And who are those stars that he took with him? One-third of the angels rebelled with Satan. And so stars are oftentimes used in Scripture to symbolize angels. So since the Bible teaches us that there are angels assigned over individual believers, that's not speculation. The Bible actually teaches that. We have guardian angels. And since Scripture also tells us that there are angels assigned over nations, as we learned in Daniel chapter 10, and since it further tells us that angels are present during church services and that angels are very, very much interested in observing what is going on down here on earth, then it really is not inconceivable to believe that the seven stars of Revelation 1, uh, 16 and also of 120, there's two places and stars are mentioned, that these actually refer to seven guardian angels of the seven churches. Pastors, you know, if you think about the leadership of churches, local churches, pastors and elders and other spiritual uh, human leaders of churches change over a period of time, don't they? I mean, look at all the ones they've had in Grace Chapel's history back there on the wall. They change every few years. Well, not every few years, but, well, in some churches they do. But um, they do change. But angels, because they're immortal, they don't die, the same angel could stand guard over a church throughout its existence. And perhaps this would explain why Christ would address the seven letters, to the individually assigned angels of those churches rather than to the local ministers. Well, the primary objection to this interpretation is that some of the angels obviously fail in keeping their churches pure. But we have to remember that although angels are supernatural, they are not divine like us, they are created beings, and they cannot supersede the will of man because God has not given them this liberty. And also, if we think about the fact that the Lord Jesus himself subjected himself to being in the position of standing outside the door of a church, the door to the church of Laodicea, the apostate church, knocking for entrance in Revelation 3.20, then we can hardly think that angels 
could do more. If a church fails in its mission, it's not the fault of its guardian angel. The angel has not been irresponsible. You can't blame the angel. That would be nice. That would be an easy way out. But rather, it's the fault of the church leadership and or the church membership having rejected that angel's attempts to lead them. And, of course, the Holy Spirit's attempt to lead them. So this, then, is the view which interprets the word angelos literally to be angels. However, this is interesting, the majority of Bible teachers and Bible expositors do not hold this view. The majority teach that the word angelos should be interpreted as messengers, meaning human spiritual leaders over the churches, whether it's the pastors or the elders or whoever. Dr. J. Vernon McGee wrote in his commentary on Revelation, he said, quote, I like to think that it refers to the local pastors. Well, Dr. McGee was a pastor. <laughs> I think most of the guys that hold to this view are pastors. He says, it is a good thing to hear a pastor being called an angel because sometimes we are called other things. <laughs> End of quote. I like that. Now, even though the word angelos is almost always translated as being angels, almost always in every case, yet those who hold to this second view point out that there is this one case in Luke 7:24 where the word is translated as messengers, and they clearly are not angels in that case. They are men. They are messengers sent from John the Baptist to inquire of Jesus if he is truly the Messiah or not. And also they refer to Malachi 2.7, where Old Testament priests are referred to as the messengers of the Lord of hosts. And furthermore, Daniel 12.3 refers to human soul winners as shining stars. So the bottom line, really, is that the word angelos is used both to mean angels and it is also used to mean human messengers. In the scripture, it's in, used in both ways. Although by far the majority of the times it is translated as angels. And the other bottom line is that the word stars is used symbolically to represent both angels and humans. The main strength for the view which teaches that the stars are spiritual human leaders of the churches is that each one of the seven letters is addressed to them. For example, look at a, um, uh, chapter 2, verse 1. It says, unto the angel of the church of Ephesus, write. Well, it would seem strange for Christ to write a letter to the guardian angel of a church rather than to the spiritual leader or the pastor of that church. So that's the main strength for that view. My conclusion is that both views can be supported by the scripture. So we really cannot dogmatically determine that one is more correct than the other. Although, if I had to choose between the two views, I would go with the angel concept, because there are more scripture verses to support the translation of the word angel than there are for the word to mean a human messenger. And also, to me, I think it's rather exciting to think about the fact that in light of all the enemies, both natural and supernatural, 
which are armed against the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, that we have specially assigned guardian-type angels working on our behalf. That excites me. I like that. Yet, you know, you can't go by your likes and your dislikes. But after I was doing research on all of this and studying both views, I really wondered why it couldn't be possible for both interpretations to be true. Since the Lord Jesus is the creator of both angels and men, you know, he is the Lord of heavenly hosts, and host means angels, and he assigns angels to their various responsibilities, and he is also the Lord of saved men, some of whom he divinely calls to be pastors and leaders over the local churches. Why then couldn't he have written the seven letters to both groups, to the angels over those churches and to the pastors of those churches? The guardian angels needed to learn the truths of what the Lord Jesus had to say about the things going on in their individually assigned church, and the spiritual human leaders also needed to know these things. And you see, that way, both human and supernatural forces could work together in their attempt to correct the sin problems that were going on in their local church body. So that would be my final conclusion. Since Scripture supports both, I say, well, why can't he have written the letters for the benefit of both? Well, that was the end of John's description of the things which he had seen as he was instructed to record in the first part of verse 19. And it's also, as you see, the end of chapter 1, and therefore it is the end of part 1 of our general outline, which is called the person of Christ. In this one chapter, I know it's taken us a few weeks to get through it, but in this one chapter we have seen a lot of wonderful truths about the Lord Jesus. We've learned that he is both the theme and the giver of this book, that he is the source, along with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit, of both grace and peace to the believer, that he is the faithful witness, he is the first begotten of the dead, he is the prince of the kings of the earth, that he is the one who loves us continually, that he is the one who loosed us from our sin by his own blood, and that he is the one who has made us kings and priests unto God. And he is therefore the one who deserves all glory and all, what? Dominion. And he is the one who is coming again to judge this world. And he has the right to do this because he is the Alpha and the Omega. He is the beginning and the ending. And he is the one which is and which was and which is to come as well as the Almighty, which we saw in verse 8. And we've also learned that he has a kingdom in verse 9, which he will one day establish. And that he is the first and the last. That he is both the power and the light source and the possessor of the church. He is the glorified, resurrected Son of Man. He is the holy and righteous judge who is indignant over both the sins of his church and the sins that he finds in the world. And he is the coming king. Finally, we've seen him as omnipotent, omniscient God who should well be feared by those who do not know him, but who does not need to be feared in a dreadful way by those who do know him. Those who have truly submitted to his dominion and who want to live to glorify him don't need to fear anything, as we've seen this morning. They do not need to fear life 
anything in life because they're in the hands of the Creator, the one who is the first and the last. They don't need to fear death because they're in the hands of the Savior who willingly became dead for their sakes but is now alive forevermore. Amen. And they need not fear eternity because they are in the hands of the keeper of the keys of hell and of death, from which his sacrificial death on their behalf has loosed them forever and forever. And now in next week's lesson, as I've already said, we're going to begin our part two study of the possession of Christ as we look at... um, Just really, we're not going to actually get into chapter 2, I'm sure. We have a lot of preliminary things to talk about, these seven churches, but you're really going to be excited about what we're going to start to learn as we look at chapters 2 and 3, the letters to the seven churches. And I'm really excited about this. We will be in it for quite some time, well through Christmas and beyond, but it'll be worth it. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for the magnificent Lord Jesus Christ. We have just gone over all the wonderful names and all the wonderful things he has done. And we just want to praise him and worship him and thank you for him. Thank you, Lord, that we don't need to fear anything that life has to hand us, that we don't need to fear death in the grave because Jesus has taken the sting out of these things for us, and that we don't even need to fear eternity. Because we know, if we know Jesus, the keeper of the keys to hell and death, we know where we're going to spend all of eternity. Father, if there is someone here who doesn't know these things for sure, I pray that she would fall on her face before you and ask you to come into her heart as Lord and Savior. And just mean it with all of her heart, and we know you'll save her. And for this, we give you praise and thanks. Now we ask, Lord, that you would press, bless us through the ministry of Kathy Price as she comes to sing for us. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The sky shall unfold. Yeah. <laughs> 
His glory. Oh, we shall.